Let's bow to the Lord right now and pray that he would help us as we approach his word this morning. Our Father, we come asking for your assistance as we open your word. Truly, it is words of life. It's words of truth. His words without error. And it is words that are powerful to change us, to shape us, to make us into the men and women that you want us to be. So, Father, I ask that you would please use your word to speak to us this morning, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you for your name's sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is certainly sobering and encouraging to open the pages of church history and to read of the account of the faith of Christians through the ages, particularly to hear of the martyrs, those who stood for their faith and suffered for their faith in the face of persecution. From Christ, from the time of Christ until today, many, many believers have lost their lives for confessing Christ as their Lord. And as we hear of their stories, we are forced to ask ourselves penetrating questions. We ask, why would they endure so much? How could they stand in the face of such horrific persecutions? Why would they lose everything in this world simply for standing for Christ? One such story comes out of Sebastian, Asia Minor in the year AD 320. Licinius, the emperor of the east, sent the commander of his forces to, on a mission to eliminate Christianity in his realm. The commander, Agricola, knew of 40 soldiers in Sebastian who were devout Christians and also skilled in battle. In an attempt to force them to renounce their faith, he Threatened, he said, either offer a sacrifice to the gods and earn great honors, or in the event of your disobedience, be stripped of your military rank and fall into disgrace. Then Agricola had the soldiers in prison to think about what he had told them. That night they encouraged themselves by praying, singing psalms. The next morning, Agricola brought out the 40 men and tried to persuade them with flattery praising them for their valor and for their good looks. These soldiers were determined, however, not to fall prey to the commander's words. And so he sent them back to prison as he prepared to bring another official to charge them, and the soldiers awaited what they deemed to be most certainly death for their faith. When the official arrived, he too attempted to persuade them to denounce Christ. But unsuccessful, he ordered that the 40 men be taken out to a frozen lake. And there they were told to strip off all their clothing and stand in the middle of the frozen mass of ice. To further entice them to denounce the Lord, a guard was placed on the shore in warm baths were placed there within eyesight, along with fires and blankets, clothing and hot food and drink, in order to entice them to come off of the ice, to renounce Christ, and to receive the comforts of their bodies. One of the soldiers could no longer bear the cold, and he ran ashore, pledging to sacrifice to the pagan idols and turning his back on Christ. The effect of morale on the remaining 39 men was immense. They could sense their faith faltering, and so they simply cried out together in unified voice, asking that God would strengthen them for their, in the heat of their trial. One of the guards who was on the shore was so moved by the faith of these men out on the ice that he stripped off all his clothes and ran out and joined them and thus stood with Christ. In the morning, all the men were found frozen to death as they had 
chosen to stand with Christ rather than deny him in the face of persecution. Stories like this can be multiplied a thousand times over in many, many horrific ways that men have devised to torture and to kill. So far, no one in our country in this day and age has been forced to face such a situation for their faith. But in the centuries since Christ and all around the world, it's, a, it's incre increasingly common. Christians have had to stand for Christ in the face of persecution. And it's no surprise to you that biblical Christianity is beginning to feel the pressure here in our country as well. People who claim the name of Christ are having to decide, do they really stand with Christ? Will they really confess his name when jobs, occupations, and reputations are on the line? More than ever in recent American memory, we're having to decide if we stand with Christ or not. And I don't know about you, but there's been times that I've, as I've thought about if persecution were to increase, if I were in the position of, say, these soldiers, or, or put yourself in the position of some other Christian martyr, and you go, could I be able to stand? What would I say? Could I be able to, able, even able to confess Christ? When asked, will I, will I have the resolve? Well, Jesus, in our text this morning, helps us to answer that question. Helps us to prepare for increasing, increased difficulty. His words to us in Luke chapter 12 will help put spiritual rebar into our faith that we would truly be able to stand against whatever onslaught the world and Satan may bring against us. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, you'll find it on page 1035 of the Pew Bibles that are directly in front of you. Last week, we looked at how Jesus unleashed a tirade against the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel. He called them out for their legalism, for their hypocrisy, for the ways that they were leading the people astray. These men had put before a show before the nation that they were the spiritual elite, that they truly had, were living the righteous life. And Jesus yanks back that curtain to reveal that behind that is simply dead man's bones. They are graves. And so really, rather than the great respected leaders that they claimed to be, they were really spiritually dead themselves and spiritually dangerous to others. And so on the heels of that, Jesus now turns to prepare his disciples to live in a world that is run and ruled by men that are as wicked as these scribes and Pharisees. They need to be ready for the opposition they will face. And so Jesus does that now in, in Luke chapter 12. Follow along as I read our text in the first 12 verses of this chapter. It says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. 
For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Our text this morning is encouragement from the mouth of our Savior to stand strong in the midst of hostility and to know that we stand on the winning side. And so as we go through this, we're going to see five instructions from Jesus, five instructions on how to stand for our faith. And church, we must take note of these. We must log these away, must begin to implement these now so that God might use us in our day for the furtherance of the gospel as we seek to stand in this evil day. And so the first instruction we see in this text is that in order for you to stand for Christ, you must kill secret sins and not coddle them. You must kill secret sins and not coddle them, verses 1 through 3. Now here at the beginning of our passage in verse 1, it would seem to the casual observer that Jesus is incredibly popular and that the popularity of on Jesus' side would not seem that there was any opposition coming against him. Notice what it says, that there are thousands of people who had gathered together and they were so pressing in that they were trampling on top of one another, it says. And these people were a little bit crazy trying to get to Jesus, trying to hear him, to have, no doubt, miracles performed as well. Jesus attracted a lot of attention. And yet it's in the midst of this, this throng of people that he, one sense, turns simply to his disciples. Notice what it says. He began to say to his disciples first. In the, in the roar of the crowd and of thousands trampling over one another, he simply focuses on those who have left everything and followed him and gives specific instructions to them. You see, he's marching towards the cross. Remember Luke 9 verse 51 says he set his face like flint to the cross. He knows where he's headed. He knows the mission that he's on. And so in light of his impending crucifixion, he needs to get his disciples ready for what will come once he's gone. He begins his instruction here by giving them a warning. You see that, verse 1? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus had just articulated that the Pharisees were hypocritical. They put on this outward display of righteousness. They put on a mask, as it were, to convince people that they were more righteous than they really were. Inwardly, they were something different. There was a discontinuity between their outer life and their inner life, between their private and their public. Jesus describes this hypocrisy as leaven, yeast, that finds its way into a dough and, and begins to permeate the whole dough. And so here, leaven in the life of the nation, leaven in the life of an individual begins to permeate and spread. It's a disease that continues to spread. It begins in one area, a bit of hypocrisy in, in one spot, a secret sin that begins to be allowed and coddled here, begins to spread throughout a life. So the hypocrisy begins to make up the character of the person. Hypocrisy is simply, we, we know how to spot this, right? We know it's when someone says one thing and does another. We, uh, unbelievers, can spot hypocrisy. We, we inherently believe that there should be continuity between what someone says and what they do. The term comes from the theater in Greek culture where a, a, a play actor would put on a mask and play a part and then take it off and go home and that what they were like on the stage was different than they were in real life. And so this word began to be used particularly in the scriptures to describe putting on a moral mask, looking to adhere to a moral standard that they, they themselves did not line up to, did not adhere to. The thing about hypocrisy, though, is that we can often spot it in others and be blind to it in ourselves. And again, the context here, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a hostile world, for the midst of persecution. How does beware of hypocrisy fit with that? I believe that Jesus wants his disciples, before they think about going and standing before 
tribunals and everything else, they've got to do business at home. They've got to look to their own character first. And the same is true for us. Does our private life line up with our public? Are we the same person at church that we are at home? Are we the same person at the office that we are when we're alone? Are we the same person online and on our apps that we are in person? Jesus warns us that those things that we begin to cultivate privately and that we, the sins that we allow in our lives that we think are hidden will not remain hidden. Look at verses two and three. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Here he gives a principle to dissuade us from cultivating a secret private life. He tells us that everything will be revealed in the end. That there is nothing hidden that will not stay hidden. There will be a reckoning for all of our behavior. Particularly the context here is our secret behavior that no one else sees. It's behind the public eye that we think we can hide from everybody else. You see, hypocrisy flourishes in darkness. It develops as we allow sins to go unaddressed in the secrecy of our hearts and our homes. Now, some of our hypocrisy, our, our family can all knows. They see it, right? We say something to other people, and then they see how we live. But there's some hypocrisy that our family doesn't even see. We keep it so hidden. It's so undetectable. We enjoy things that we shouldn't enjoy. But Jesus says, even those places of our hearts that no one else can see, God sees. And he will one day expose them on the judgment day. One man said it this way. He says, what you are in public will never blind God to what you are in private. What you are in public will never blind God to what you are in private. God sees all. So Jesus here is calling us to look at our own character. Before we think about standing for Christ in the midst of persecution, we've got to examine our own hearts and lives. Are we cultivating sins privately? Are we people of integrity? You see, folks, before we can stand for Christ in public, we must be holy for Christ in private. We will have no witness for Jesus if we're harboring and coddling secret sins. We must mortify an old word which means to kill, to put to death our sin. And that doesn't just mean hide it. It doesn't just mean get rid of the visible manifestations of the sin. To kill our sin means we've got to go at the root. Like weeding, you can't just rip off the foliage. You've got to get at the root to be able to kill that plant. The same is true with sin in our lives. Sin comes out of our hearts and we've got to kill it at the heart level, at the desire level. What is it in my heart that caused me to do that? Not just, oh, I'll stop doing that sin, but what was in me that drew me to that? What was it that inclined me to that? We've got to ask ourselves the hard questions and get at the root in our hearts if we want to put sin to death. Put off the old man, as Paul said. Be renewed in the spirit of our minds through the word of God and put on the character of Christ. Put on the new man. Church, we cannot go to battle with the devil's forces out there if we are enjoying the devil's delights in here. We can't go to battle with the devil's forces out there if we're enjoying the devil's delights in here. We can't decry the moral degeneracy of our society if we're breaking God's law in our own lives. As Peter says, judgment begins at the house of God. We've got to look in our own hearts and lives. Now, don't get me wrong. This does not mean that in order to stand for Jesus, we have to be perfect people. We all recognize that we are flawed people. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is part of the truth that we learn from the Bible, and we happily confess, yes, I am a sinner. So the gospel frees us to declare. So we know that we're not perfect we fall short of God's standard. But there is a difference 
between someone fighting hypocrisy and someone who's not fighting hypocrisy. Both are sinners, but one is seeking to fight and kill hypocrisy and the other is not. The difference is that the one who's fighting hypocrisy repents of sin when he sees it. He repents of sin as soon as he sees it. He expresses godly remorse. He doesn't explain it away. He doesn't seek to excuse it and go, oh, that was just because so-and-so did that to me. Or that was just because of the situation I was in, just because of the pressures I'm going through at work. Whatever it might be, we can't explain our sin away. We've got to deal with it, own it, confess it, and turn away from it. See, a hypocrite will only repent when they're caught will only repent when it's morally convenient to do so. But a true follower of Christ wants to get rid of sin for the glory of Christ's sake. Jesus, I love you. I don't want anything in my life that is stained with sin. I want to get rid of it. Friends, the only cure for hypocrisy is to go to Jesus is to find forgiveness for our failures, to find forgiveness for those sins. We can come into the light with our sins. We can confess our sins to him, all those that are known and unknown, because Jesus has paid for every last one of them. So don't allow your sin and your shame to keep you hidden with your sin buried. Come into the light and find freedom and forgiveness from the very Savior who sacrificed for you. And so, if we're going to stand for Christ, we first need to, must kill secret sins and not coddle them. The second instruction that Jesus gives us in this text for standing firm in a hostile world is that we must fear God's judgment, not man's. We must fear God's judgment, not man's. And we see this in verses four and five. Notice verse four, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Jesus shows his love for them, these men by calling them friends. And this is the only place in the Gospels where he directly calls them friends. What he wants his friends to know is they're not to fear man, but to fear God. And he makes the contrast between two kinds of fear by talking about the ultimate judgment that both parties can bring. The ultimate judgment that man can bring and the ultimate judgment that God can bring. The ultimate judgment that man can inflict is death. He says that they kill the body and have nothing more that they can do. Their, their judgment stops there. This is probably best represented by governments that have been given the authority by God to to punish evildoers, and yet they often step beyond their God-given authority to kill even righteous people. And yet, God's word here, Jesus' word here, that we're, do not fear those who kill the body, means don't fear any other human being. Don't fear any other mortal flesh. Whether it's your, the government, or whether it's your boss, or whether it's your peers, or whether it's your family, Whoever it might be, do not fear them. Because the greatest thing that any of those people could ever do is simply kill you. It's that simple, right? All they can do is kill you. But the point is clear. No matter where we find ourselves, we should not fear the repercussions of doing what is right. The determiner of our behavior should not be the opinion and criticism of other people. And isn't it so true? It's easy for us to be so controlled and caught up by the fear of man. We care so much what other people think about us. We care so much how they're going to respond or react to us. Particularly when we seek to stand up for Jesus, right? Seek to witness for him. Seek to confront somebody in their sin. Well, I don't want to do that because what are they going to think about me? What are they going to say? And so Jesus' words here are so pertinent to us. We should not fear those who can merely kill the body. Instead, Jesus says, verse 5, but I warn you whom to fear. This isn't just a positive instruction. This is a warning. A warning that you must fear the one who is far greater than man. 
Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. We are to fear God because his authority is far greater to judge. He has much more power, much more authority than any mortal, any human. Notice he says that he doesn't just kill the body, but he also, after doing so, has authority to cast into hell. This is what Revelation calls the second death, in which there is our first death that every person fears, mankind fears. But the second death is far greater. This is eternal torment and wrath forever in hell. The word Gehenna, coming from the valley outside Jerusalem where the trash heap burned perpetually, was an illustration to the people of that day of the hell, the fires of hell. Friends, we fear God not only because he deals with our bodies, but because he deals with our soul. We fear God not only because he deals with our temporal life, but because he deals with our spiritual life as well. We fear him not only because we have to give an account for our physical actions, but we have to give an account for our spiritual actions and decisions as well. Now, it isn't popular today to talk about fearing God. Of course, it's not popular to talk about hell either. There's many people that don't believe in a literal physical hell, and yet it's pretty clear that Jesus believes in one. That there's an actual place where sinners are cast to reject the Lord. But instead of fearing God, people go, oh no, we shouldn't emphasize fearing God. That sounds too like doom and gloom. You know, we should probably like, just talk about loving God and, fearing, and, and, and praising him and thanking him. But notice in verse 5, Jesus says it twice. He says, I warn you whom to fear, fear him. And then at the end, yes, I tell you, fear him. I mean, he wants us to get the point that we are to fear God and we cannot miss it. Commentator Leon Morris described the fear of God this way. He said it's an attitude compounded of a recognition of the greatness and the righteousness of God on the one hand and our readiness to sin on the other. Fear of this kind guards against presumption and must find its place in the right faith. You see, God is holy and God is righteous. We are sinful and we are small. And we deserve to be consumed by the wrath of God. The Bible is very clear about that. He has the authority to judge us for our sin. And so therefore, as Jerry Bridges helpfully says, we should have a reverential awe of God, a, re a worshipful awe of God. Why does Jesus teach his disciples and us to fear God? It's because we must be controlled by this love and fear of God. Fear of man will cause us to capitulate and cause us to compromise. But fear, fear of man will cause us to renounce Christ as we go with the flow of popularity. We want to not stand against the popular opinions of the day. We want to go, to, go along to get along. You see, if our thinking is dominated by what will other people think, then we will find that apostasy is the end destination. But if instead we align our thinking with the question, what does God think? What does God desire? Then we'll find ourselves on the path to glory and to great reward, even if it's through the gateway of great pain and suffering. And so I ask you, do you fear God? Do you recognize God's authority over you? If you have never trusted in Christ, if you have not surrendered yourself to him, then you need to recognize God's authority over you to take your life and to cast you into hell. He is your creator. He is the holy and righteous judge and your life will be judged by him someday. The Bible says that it's a pointer unto man to die once and after this comes judgment. This God is not one to fool around with. This is not one to ignore. And so the only hope is to trust in Jesus. Only Jesus is the true Savior that can save us from the fires of hell. He is the Savior of mankind because when we place our faith in Him, we believe that 
He received the penalty for our sins. And upon the cross, he received the wrath of God so that I don't have to. And so, therefore, he, in essence, received the wrath that you and I would receive in hell. He paid the penalty for sinners who placed their faith in him. Some try to argue, well, I'm a Christian now, and so I should, we shouldn't be talking about fear anymore because I'm a child of God. Well, it's certainly true that Jesus did pay for our sins. It is true that we will never taste a lick of the fire of hell, but that doesn't mean we should cease fearing God. Fear of God is, another author defines this way, says it's that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. We have these feelings towards God based upon all that he has done, and we stand in awe of him. The New Testament describes fear as a part of the Christian life. 1 Peter 2, 17 commands us to fear God. Acts describes the church living in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says that we're to purify our lives in the fear of God. Fear of God is to be a part of our lives. But it's all shaped by the gospel. We don't fear that we're going to face condemnation because Romans 8.1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we have a holy, reverential awe of God because we all know that apart from Christ, we are deserving of his wrath. We are deserving of being cast into hell because, yes, we have committed sins worthy of such punishment. We stand in fear of him because we know God as our Father and we don't want to do anything that would displease him. And so we are sensitive towards sin. We don't want to do anything that would displease our Father. We're not flippant towards sin. We don't want to dishonor his name. We don't want to trample on the grace that he's shown us. We don't want to break his law. And so we live in the fear of God. So church, the only thing that will overcome our desire to be liked in this world and accepted in this society is a stronger desire for and delight in who God is. We must fight this great desire of, of, of being accepted before man with this greater desire of who God is and the prospect of the final judgment. Whose opinion are you fighting for? Whose opinion do you care about? Jesus is trying to point us to that final day and say it's what's going to matter on that day that you should care about. May we be like John Knox, the man who brought the Reformation to Scotland. When he was buried, the pastor said of him, here lies a man who in his life never feared the face of man. May we, may the same be said of us. The third instruction that Jesus gives us in this passage says, you will stand for firm for Christ if you trust God's care, not your own. If you trust God's care, not your own. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Here, Jesus quickly turns. His goal is not to frighten his friends, but to comfort them, to assure them. Yes, we should fear God and recognize his authority to cast us into hell, but we should never lose sight of God's tender care. And isn't it true? In the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, yea, in the midst of persecution, that we can be tempted to think that God's forgotten about us? Be tempted to think, does God even care about me as child? Here I am, receiving this kind of suffering. Can you imagine those men on the ice thinking that very thought? God, have you abandoned? You've forgotten me? And so Jesus gently reminds us that the Father has not forgotten about us. He points us to some sparrows. Sparrows were not sold for pets. They apparently were part of the diet of the poor because they were so cheap. The two coins, two pennies here, Assyria, were the smallest copper coin in, in the Roman economy. It was worth one-sixteenth of a denarius and thus was the equivalent to the pay someone would receive for simply working a half hour. 
And so these birds were worth close to nothing in the economy of the day. And yet Jesus says not one of them is forgotten before God. Every single sparrow sold to the marketplaces all across the Roman Empire, God doesn't forget about a single one. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Nothing happens outside his knowledge. Even these little birds are not worthless in his eyes. And so Jesus' argument is from the lesser to the greater. If these very little, tiny, seemingly worthless birds are not forgotten by God, how much more you are not forgotten? He won't forget you. But not only will he not forget you, verse 6, but he knows so much about you. He knows the exact number of hairs on your head, verse 7. He doesn't just know the averages. He knows the exact number of hairs on your head right now, even after your morning shower when you lost those five hairs in the shower. Okay? He knows the number of your head any given moment. And the commentator Leon Morris helps us to see the value of this statement. He says, The importance of this does not lie in the actual account, actual count, but in the fact that God cares enough about his people to know the minutest detail about them. He knows things they do not know about themselves. Isn't that comforting? God knows every single thing about us, even things we don't know. And so we can trust him. That's why Jesus says, fear not, as he ends verse seven. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Isn't the juxtaposition interesting? Jesus says, don't fear man, fear God, fear God, fear not. It's only because we fear God. It's only because we have God placed before our, our, our minds and our hearts that we love and serve him with all that we have, that we trust him, that then we can not fear in life. We can trust our loving father, trust him to care for us, and trust those we love, even in the midst of hard times and persecution. Well, let's look next at the fourth instruction that Jesus gives us in our text. The fourth instruction for standing firm for Christ, and that is that we must speak up for Jesus and not deny him. We must speak up for Jesus and not deny him. This is in verses 8 through 10. Jesus here turns and begins to talk about confessing Christ. He says, verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Verses 1 through 3, hypocrisy. We looked at the temptation to compromise privately. Here in verses 8 through 10, Jesus addresses the temptation to compromise publicly. Previously, it was to allow secret sins into our lives. Here, it's claiming to know Jesus, and then we, we, when the pressure's on, we deny him. This too is a form of hypocrisy. If we say we follow Christ but deny him when pressed, we're showing a hypocritical heart. But Jesus is saying here that allegiance to him, being his disciple and following him, is not as simple as raising your hand, walking an aisle, and simply call it done. It is, requires confession when everything is on the line. In order to be a true follower, a true disciple, you must confess Christ before men, Jesus says. And, and note that confessing Christ is all-encompassing. This is not just simply saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. This is, this is confessing everything the Bible teaches. Standing behind the word of Christ, not just claiming to follow Jesus. We can't shy away or shrink back from any of Christ's words. We aren't ashamed of him, of his gospel, or of his word. Silence is not an option. We must open our mouths and confess. And so when they ask if you are a Christian, you say yes. When asked if you believe everyone is born a sinner and deserving of hell, you must say yes, for that is what the Bible teaches when asked if you believe homosexuality is a sin, you must say yes, for this is what the Bible teaches. When asked if you believe there are only two genders and that they are unchangeable, you must say yes, for that is what the Bible teaches. 
We cannot be ashamed of Christ, of his gospel, or of his word, and we must stand behind everything the Bible says. To avoid, to deny the words of Scripture is to deny Christ. We must stand firm on all the doctrines of the Bible, for these are Christ's doctrines. This is truth. In contrast to confessing Christ, Jesus says is to deny him. To deny Jesus before men. I believe the denial he's speaking of here is not a simple one-off denial, but this is a, a, a life denial. This is a hardened denial, renouncing allegiance to Jesus and having no desire to return. These are those who turn their back on Christ and never look back. Judas Iscariot, who heard these very words when they were spoken, went on to deny Christ and to betray him. He did not repent, and as the scriptures say, he went out and hung himself. But remember another man who denied Christ on that very night, Peter, the apostle. He gives us an example of one who initially denied Christ, but was then broken and contrite and sought forgiveness. He saw the error of his denial, and it grieved his heart. And I believe that this teaches us, friends, that those who may succumb to the temptation to deny Christ in certain circumstances may know that all is not lost that there is indeed forgiveness found for those who may deny Christ in the midst of a heated situation. He even says, verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. There is forgiveness found for those who would speak those fateful words. And the story of church history reminds us of this as well. The, the great Thomas Cramner, of, who brought the Reformation to England, while he was persecuted and pressed, and he's in a dungeon he signed a recantation saying that he renounced all the Reformation doctrines, all, all the, the truth of the gospel, and chose to follow the Church of Rome. But then the next morning, as he goes to stand before the judge, as they're looking to finalize his recantation, he, with settled composure and courage, recanted his recantation and said, I was wrong to renounce Christ. I stand on him, him and him alone. He was then taken to the stake to be burned, and that hand that had used to sign the recantation only the night previous, he placed that into the fire first, recognizing the sin of his denial, and God gave him the strength and the grace to stand to the end. Friends, the danger here is a hardened, Denial and rejection of Jesus. Now in verse 10, Jesus also mentions a sin, though, that is, he says is not forgiven. And this verse has provided more trouble over the years for sincere Christians than it should. When we read this verse in context with the other Gospels, we gain some insight into what Christ is talking about. It says simply that, verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Matthew 12 tells us that this declaration was given in the context of the Pharisees rejecting Jesus. They have, had accused Jesus of performing miracles not by the Spirit, but by Satan. And so therefore, this sin, I believe, is best understood as occurring when someone sees the miracles of Christ and attributes those miracles to Satan instead of the Spirit. And for this reason, I don't believe that this sin can be committed today. It was only possible in the first century when Christ was present. But with that said, I believe that it's certainly possible for those to be hardened against Christ and they run so far away from him that they commit apostasy, as we say, this falling away. This hardened rejection causes us to see how could that person ever turn back? How could there ever be any, how could they ever find forgiveness again? They knew the truth. They were there. They tasted of it and then they ran away from it and they rejected it. But we know that the message of the gospel to all sinners everywhere is that repentance is available, the gospel is available. There is no person on this planet, I believe, to whom the gospel door is closed. The word of Christ goes to them 
repent or perish. But this is why we must guard against sin and unbelief. This is why Jesus tells us to beware of the leaven of, the, of hypocrisy. We've got to watch out in our own hearts. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying, church, watch out. You've got to be looking in your own hearts and in each other's lives to make sure there isn't sin and unbelief that's creeping up that ultimately would overwhelm and cause you to fall away from the living God. The road to apostasy begins with sin and unbelief in the heart that's not repented of. And this is why a Puritan pastor once wrote, religion which is begun in hypocrisy will certainly end in apostasy. Religion which is begun in hypocrisy will certainly end in apostasy. Again, do you see how Jesus, almost in every verse of this text, is pointing us to the end and final judgment? He's looking to the end, and here he's talking about what he himself will say before the angels of God and before the Father. Who will he confess? Who will he say, I'm with that person? It's those who exhibit a life of faith in this life. We must keep our eyes on God, the one who cares. We can't get distracted. We've got to keep our eyes on the end goal and know that God will stand with us. Powerful people will try to convince us to renounce our position and thus our Lord, but we must keep our eyes on the Lord and stand firm in our day. But of course, standing before powerful people can cause us to get nervous. What are we going to say? How are we going to compose ourselves? Are we going to be able to stand strong? And that's where Jesus turns in our final instruction this morning. He says, finally, we need to trust the Spirit will aid and not abandon you. You must trust the Spirit will aid and not abandon you. Verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus reassures his disciples and his friends that they have a promise that they can cling to. They don't need to be anxious about what they're going to say, about how they're going to stand, because the Holy Spirit is going to help them. They need not be worried or frightened. They simply need to trust in the Spirit's help. And I believe this is a general promise that God will help his people to stand strong whenever they must stand for Christ. Whenever they must confess Jesus before men, the Spirit is there to help. In other words, how do we obey verse 8, which tells us to acknowledge Christ before men or to confess Jesus before men? How are we going to do that? It's going to be with the Spirit's aid. We need to trust God's help. We can be certain of God's assistance when the glory of Christ is on the line. He won't leave us in our moment of trial. He will come to our aid. But not only do we have this promise in verses 11 and 12, but we now, at our vantage point, have the example of history. That God has fulfilled this word. And we can be sure that he will fulfill it in our lives as well. The book of Acts is clear that as Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and others go before the authorities and stand before others, that the Spirit helped them to be able to stand strong, to confess Christ boldly and clearly. The early church in Acts 4 prayed for boldness. God, may your Spirit help us to be able to stand and confess Christ boldly. And the testimony of the saints through the centuries is that God has stood with his people in those moments of trial as they've had millstones tied around their necks and cast into rivers, as they've had hot plates pressed against their body, as they've been hung, beaten, torn, God has enabled them to stand, to enable them to confess Christ firm to the end. I believe these words, penned by the gospel writer Luke, strengthened Luke's heart when it came to the end of his life. At 84 years old, after all that he'd done for Jesus, traveling with the Apostle Paul, writing down the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts, he was then brought to trial for his faith, was found guilty, and when, then was hung from an olive tree, breathing his last in service to Christ. He, no doubt, trusted the Spirit to come to his aid 
in the midst of those final hours. Church, believer, standing for Christ is not a matter of us finding some sort of great strength within ourselves. This is not us about being great people in and of ourselves. This is about us confessing our weakness and throwing ourselves upon a gracious Savior. Our strength to stand does not come from us. As we sang earlier, right? He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. That is what we put our faith in. That is what we trust. That is when we think about, God, how could I stand in that day? We say it's only by your grace and only by your strength. May God give us that strength when the time comes. Amen? Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we indeed are sobered by all that you have commanded us in this text. To think about the opposition that indeed comes to those who are followers of Christ and church history informs us that that opposition is great. But Father, I ask that you would please help us as a church to be strengthened in our resolve to stand for Jesus in our day. May we trust the Spirit to strengthen us, to come to our aid. And Father, when we fail, when we are weak, and more fearful of man than we are of you, I pray that you would gently bring us back to yourself. May you remind us of the cross, remind us of the forgiveness and the cleansing offered through Jesus' blood. May we repent and find forgiveness and embrace in your loving arms. We thank you that you do not cast off the weak and the frail, that you do not throw off those who, who fail often, and so we trust in you this morning. We depend upon you. May you keep us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Let me send you out this morning with the doxology from the end of Jude. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed.